Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy City Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy with simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Rapunzel creates excitement and encourages financial education. Check out their free mobile app and the interviews of Brian and Miles in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Windy City Historians podcast, episode 22, Eyewitness to History, from the Pullman Strike to H.H. Holmes. You know, Patrick, when we look at history, sometimes we put events into silos. This occurred, and then this incident, and then this happened, each in its own distinct tower, academic or any fields like that, right, Patrick? Yeah, it's, I mean, people tend to be very simplistic at times, which, you know, just makes it easier to understand when you're first introducing a topic. For example, Governor John Altgeltz, his pardon of the Haymarket prisoners, was announced on June 23rd, 1893, several years after the Haymarket incident. And this is also while the Columbian Exposition was going on. We did a podcast on the Haymarket and these pardons, but we didn't mention that just two days before the pardons were issued, the Ferris wheel began to operate on the Midway Plaisance. So we're not immune to building our own silos regarding historical events. Haymarket here, World's Fair there. Yeah, right. I think that makes perfect sense. That's kind of how we think of history, right? It's just categories. Yeah, we organize and group it, but it, it's not that neat or tidy. When examining historical events, we tend not to recognize that some people experienced several incidents in history during their lifetimes. And to them, it was like canoeing down a river of time's continuum. It wasn't just a silo. It was just part of their life. And that's what our program is about today. The experience of one man, John Fitzpatrick, a Chicago policeman, and not only the remarkable events he witnessed on his years on the force in the 1880s and 90s, but also some of the fascinating people he met along the way. And I'm very pleased to say that our guest on the program today is Kim Fitzpatrick, the great-great-granddaughter of Officer Fitzpatrick, and the one who uncovered this remarkable story due to her diligent research. And really, it's a story of serendipity. And speaking of which, that's how I met Kim. I was riding the 49B Western bus, minding my own business, reading a book. And this woman who's sitting across from me says, excuse me, do you work in the loop? And I said, first of all, I was like, huh? Because you know when you ride public transportation, nobody talks to anybody? Right. And nobody's supposed to recognize anybody, really, unless you're really close neighbors or something. That's right. So I was kind of startled. And then I discovered that Kim and I work in the same building. So we got to talking, and it turned out she had an interest in Chicago history. And she was doing some genealogical research, too, on her ancestors. And she was uncovering some pretty amazing things about her great-grandfather, who she didn't know about at the time, John Fitzpatrick, and some of the events that he witnessed in Chicago history, starting with the Haymarket, the Columbian Exposition, the H.H. Holmes case, and, of course, one of the focuses of today's program, the 1894 Pullman strike. 
And he was in the thick of all of it, Patrick. It sounds like he actually gets into these situations and is part of this history because he's paying attention, he's aware and smart and recognized for his efforts. So I was fascinated with Kim's research. And at the same time she was doing it, you and I were working on this podcast. So I thought, boy, Kim would be a great guest. We are delighted that Kim took the time to meet with us and talk about her research on her great-great-grandfather, John Fitzpatrick, and some of the fascinating stories she uncovered about him. When we talked to Kim, we started out the interview by asking her about how she got interested in her ancestor. Let's go to the interview. I'm Kim Fitzpatrick, and, well, I work for the city of Chicago. I currently work with the law department now. My colleague got me into Ancestry.com, so I did a lot of digging around. And then every year, my parents would go to the cemetery. I noticed, like, a few of the graves of my dad's side. I'm like, Dad, who are these people? Do you even know who these graves are? Because they're in the same plot. I went through my Ancestry again, and... I was starting connecting the dots, and then all of a sudden, I came upon an article for John E. Fitzpatrick, so obviously I matched that date on the grave in my dad's plot, so I kept digging, and I found so many newspaper articles, that's how I came upon John Fitzpatrick. Well, let me ask you this, does your dad have any family lore or history about your ancestor? Unfortunately, nothing. Because as we will see, he led a pretty amazing life in Chicago. I know. And I've asked him numerous times. So unfortunately, I have nothing except his grave. Well, you're being modest because I've seen the research you did and it's unbelievable. Let's start as to how he got to Chicago. John Fitzpatrick was born in Jonestown, PA. He came to St. Louis, where he worked not as a policeman, and then he wound up in Springfield, Illinois, and then he wound up in Bridgeport working for a wireworks company. There's an amazing book that you found. It's called The Chicago Police from the Settlement of the Community to the Present Time by John Flynn, and this was published in 1887, and you somehow got a copy of it. Yeah. I opened it up, and there's a profile of your great-grandfather... And he became a patrolman on January 13th, 1883, and was detailed at Harrison Street. His well-known fitness for the place induced Superintendent Ebersole to make him drill master, which position he entered in 1885 and has discharged its duties ever since with a skill and satisfaction. He was appointed lieutenant immediately after the Haymarket explosion, which we'll talk about a little bit. Now, another thing about your ancestor, and I mean this as a compliment, is he's kind of the Forrest Gump of Chicago politics. Like Forrest Gump, he was in all the major places of the latter half of the 19th century. He's at Haymarket. He's at the World's Fair. He's at Pullman, as we'll talk about. He's at all of these events. Yeah, he was involved in this, involved in that, part of these major, major events. It shocks me to this day. That's got to be pretty cool. It is pretty cool. I thought maybe we could start with Haymarket. Yeah, absolutely. You gave me the paperwork here. 
This is the official report by John Bonfield to the city council and the mayor. And it says here, one of the officers, I beg leave to make special mention, immediately after the explosion, I looked behind me and saw the greater portion of the second division on the ground. I gave the order to the men to close up. And in an instant, Sergeant John E. Fitzpatrick was at my side and repeated the order. To show our appreciation of the sergeant's gallant conduct, I would respectfully recommend to his honor, the mayor, and yourself the promotion of the sergeant as soon as a vacancy occurs. I am satisfied that the department does not contain a braver or a better officer. Respectfully submitted John Bonfield, Department of Police. Yep, I have that right here. Reading this over and over again, it sounded like he was his right-hand man. He did what he was told. He got respected for that. He stepped up. Another report that you gave me, it's like a narrative account of the Haymarket. And basically, John Fitzpatrick was standing there when the bomb was thrown literally at his feet. In fact, the article I read said that he heard the hissing of it, and then it blew up. And by some miracle, your ancestors survived because many did not that night. Yes. I actually have pages that goes literally through every single detail. Lieutenant Quinn in his report. During the struggle, I saw Inspector Bonfield, Captain Ward, Lieutenant Hubbard, Sergeants Moore and Patrick. They were side by side. They were talking how close they were to the bomb. Now they were on Desplaine Street, about 90 feet north of Randall. The bomb was thrown from the east side of Desplaine Street, directly in front of myself and Sergeant Fitzpatrick. I mean, think about that. Sergeant Fitzpatrick, he's five feet from the bomb. Yep. It's unbelievable. It's just by fate that he survived that. I know. And you and I went down there one time at lunch, and you had the report with you, and we stood in the spot where Fitzpatrick was at, and then we kind of reenacted it, tried to imagine what it was like. Patrick and I just did a podcast on the Haymarket. I don't think many Chicagoans know how significant that event is in Chicago history. You're right. A lot of people don't pay attention to it. And they don't realize the importance of it and the people involved and the bravery of so many men, including my ancestor. So he gets promoted, deservingly so. And then three years later, he gets some terrible news out of Jonestown, PA. Tell us about that. So many, many articles popped up in my search, and he found out that part of his family from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, was unfortunately killed by a natural disaster, the Johnstown flood. St. Louis, Chicago, numerous newspapers. Captain Johnson Patrick of Essential Detail received the dispatch from his brother. My wife and children all drowned. Bodies were not recovered. Rose Brady was Captain Fitzpatrick's sister, James Brady, the husband, Ellen Brady's daughter. This all took place May 31st, 1889. It was terrible news for John. Okay, back in the studio. Patrick, I thought this would be a good place to briefly talk about the Jonestown flood. Have you ever been out there, Patrick? I haven't, Chris. This was the result of a dam that was built for a lake for the Gilded Age rich of the East Coast, people like Andrew Carnegie and Andrew Mellon. And the location of this dam had been problematic. It was built high up on a mountain, 14 miles upstream from the town of Jonestown, PA. 
There had been several warnings that this earthen dam was in danger of failing, but no one seemed to take it seriously. Then, after days and days of heavy rainfall, on May 31st, 1889, the dam failed. And it sent 14 million cubic meters of water down towards the town of Jonestown with a flow rate that was equal to that of the Mississippi River. And this wall of water smashed the town, killing over 2,200 people. Tragic. Have you ever read the book by McCullough? Yes, I did. On the Jonestown flood? Yeah. Yeah. It was such a catastrophe. Yes. And his family members are in the known deaths at the back of the book. Kim, that fantastic book that you found from 1887, The History of the Chicago Police by John Flynn, that profiles officers such as John Fitzpatrick. I don't know if you noticed it. On the same page, Kim, which is a profile of a copper named Francis O'Neill. Oh, yeah. Well, we know who that is, Kim. Yes. Chief O'Neill. This is Chief O'Neill's pub, and we'll talk about it with Pullman, but John Fitzpatrick and Francis O'Neill worked together. Okay, back in the studio. Patrick, I thought this would be a good place to learn more about Francis O'Neill. Francis O'Neill is known in this town as Chief O'Neill. Well, that's only because there's a bar named in his honor. And in fact, we've had a core group of the Windy City historians. We met there over a few pints of Guinness. It was our first meeting in 2015, Patrick. And what a great place to debut the Windy City historians, but at Chief O'Neill's. Right. But before he was chief, Francis O'Neill, who was born in Ireland in County Cork in 1848, he was a lad who was adventurous. When he was 17, he got a job as a cabin boy on a ship, sailed the world, even got shipwrecked in the Pacific, and wound up on the west coast of the United States. After working as a shepherd, Patrick, in the Sierra Nevada mountains, looking after 3,000 sheep, he went to sea again, rounded the Cape of Good Hope, wound up in Chicago in 1870 at the age of 22. Now, what were you doing at age 22, Patrick? Were you rounding the Cape of Good Hope? No, and I don't think I have any intention of doing that. That's one of the most dangerous sailing trips you can take. So he arrives in Chicago in 1870, a year before the Great Chicago Fire. Good timing, huh? Yeah, right. And later he joins the Chicago police force in 1873. And a month later, he's shot by a burglar named John Bridges. Wow. And O'Neill would carry the bullet near his spine for the rest of his life. Ouch. Yeah, one month on the job. Due to his bravery, he was promoted to patrolman, one of the many promotions he would get in his career. And in 1878, he became the desk sergeant at the Deering Street Station, Patrick. There was a lot of Irish immigrants who lived in that neighborhood. Now, there's a reason that's important, because in 1901, he would become superintendent of police, and thus the chief, Patrick, you referenced, Chief O'Neill. But he always had an interest in Irish music, which was fading away due to immigration and other factors. He took it upon himself to preserve this music, and thanks to his efforts, he would publish several books preserving over 2,600 tunes. Yeah, I've heard about this. O'Neill didn't have the ability to transcribe music to paper, but that didn't stop him. He enlisted the help of James O'Neill, no relation, who was a fiddler and a Bridgeport blacksmith, to help him write down the notes. And Patrick, I'm sure you're not surprised that Chief O'Neill got James a job on the force, and he later became a sergeant. (laughs) Well, it comes in handy, right? Sure does. Chief O'Neill writes about how his quest for tunes sometimes would have comical effects as far as his police work. 
This is from one of his stories. One Monday morning, I unexpectedly encountered John McFadden in the corridor outside my office in City Hall. And wondering what could have happened since we parted the evening before, I asked, What brings you here so early, John? I wanted to see you privately in your office, Chief. So in we went. When the door was closed behind us, Mac did not keep me long in suspense. Chief, I lost the third part of Patty in London, which you gave me last night. When I got up this morning, all I could remember were the first and second parts, and I wanted you to whistle the missing parts for me again. That was the important business. <laughs> Another story is the chief heard about an Irish musician named George West. O'Neill and his fellow officers went to the man's house and knocked on the door. Are you in there, Georgie? They commanded. There was an answer from the other side of the door. Who's asking? It's Francis O'Neill, Chicago police. So George West replies, Are you going to arrest me? O'Neill says, Only if you give us bad tunes. <laughs> and they learned two new tunes that day, including The Boys of Blue Hill and Far From Home. Very good. So then, did Chief O'Neill and Fitzpatrick know each other? Oh, yes, they did. Let's go back to the interview. You gave me a printout of the opening ceremonies of the World's Fair, and John Fitzpatrick was an honor guard to it, which they didn't give to just anybody, Kim. Yeah. I mean, this was the biggest event in the history of Chicago, and they selected a few policemen. If you flip over the page, there's a gallery of photos, and there he is, John Fitzpatrick. This is the official program for the opening ceremonies with President Grover Cleveland, and your great-great-grandfather's getting almost more space than Cleveland. It's pretty incredible. This is interesting. When it opened on May 1st, 1893, the weather was fair but cloudy and somewhat cold. And it started at 9.05, which is interesting because you think it would start at 9, right? But it started at 9.05. And then President Grover Cleveland was staying at the Lexington Hotel. Guess who wound up using that as his headquarters 30 years later? Al Capone. Oh, wow. I did not know that. So... Your ancestor then, with this procession, leads the presidents and the mounted police and whatnot, a platoon of police officers, and he was in the order of the procession, as it's called. He was number two. So Grover Cleveland was the first. The detail on this, it basically tells you everybody in line, where they were, what they were doing. It's unbelievable. From this opening ceremonies, Kim, read out an example well, his bio, of course, talks about born in Pennsylvania. He was actually educated in the public schools of Pennsylvania. And like you mentioned, insistent superintendent of the Springfield Steel and Ironworks, promoted June 13th, 1883, patrol sergeant. You know, it's just incredible, this one sentence, how he's just appointed and promoted. He went to patrolman, promoted to patrol sergeant in 1886, who... Lieutenant, 1887, Captain, 1888, to an inspector, April 22nd, 1892. His successive promotions, while attesting the appreciation of those in authority of the services rendered. It's just incredible how he got the recommendation from his honor, the mayor, 
it's just incredible how they showed this appreciation in an opening ceremony of one of the world's biggest exposition. Yeah, right. I mean, the fact that we're still talking about it today shows you how impactful it was. It's part of our history and part of the Chicago flag. So every day you see a Chicago flag, a lot of people don't realize what it means. Every single detail of the flag means something, and this is one of them. And my great-great-grandfather was a part of it. That's why you have to talk to your aunt, because somewhere in the attic, there's got to be memorabilia. He probably received a special badge for this, or there's probably photographs of him at the World's Fair. It's got to be there. Well, unless it was lost in that fire, but it sounds like he was a pretty remarkable individual. Pretty incredible. So, Kim, nine months after the World's Fair was the Pullman strike. Yeah. So, once again, Officer Fitzpatrick is now dispatched to handle this strike of workers and railroads being sabotaged. Okay, back in the studio. Patrick, I thought this would be a good place to go into more detail about the Pullman strike of 1894. Now, you and I, we've talked about George Pullman before on this podcast, and probably most Chicagoans have heard about Pullman the train cars, or if not that, then the neighborhood of Pullman on the far south side of Chicago. However, they may not be as familiar with the 1894 Pullman strike, which had a profound effect on labor in U.S. history. But here's some background on George Pullman. Like a lot of Chicago's city founders, George Pullman was from upstate New York. He was born in 1831, and he was the son of a carpenter. His father's specialty was moving whole buildings, and we've talked about this, Patrick, how they would jack up the buildings to install the sewers. Yeah, here in Chicago. Right. In 1859, George and his brother moved to Chicago. Great timing, because this is about the time that the Chicago leaders want to install the sewers. And in order to do so, they have to raise the buildings. And the Pullman brothers made a fortune literally jacking up the buildings with people having dinner while they were jacking up the buildings. Pretty remarkable. Right. Right, because it was a long process. You would just turn all these screws on these jacks, half a turn or a turn, and go around the whole building and do all of those. Unless you had a huge amount of men, it would take some time to coordinate so that the building wouldn't rack too much or fall apart while you're doing it. And you can go to certain parts of the city today, and you can see where they didn't jack up the buildings. Yeah, over in Bridgeport, I was there yesterday, and there's quite a few houses that are below the street grade that now their front doors had become basement entrances that are half a level down, and then there's steps going up to the second floor to make now the front door of the house. George Pullman's entry into Chicago coincided also with the city becoming an important center for the railroads. In fact, although railroads in America were only 30 years old in 1860, there was already over 30,000 miles of track. So Pullman, knowing an opportunity when he saw it, he started a business designing and building sleeper cars. Pullman's business got great publicity due to a national tragedy as a Pullman car transported the body of President Lincoln from Washington, D.C. to Springfield, Illinois. After his assassination in 1865, the route allowed thousands of people to see the Lincoln train go by, and soon more orders for Pullman cars were streaming in. By 1867, Pullman began another part of the business, the Pullman Palace Car Company. Soon after, there were thousands of workers employed at his factory. By 1880, Pullman began building a town for his employees south of Chicago. 
The aim was for a clean place for his workers to live close to the factories. Remember, Chicago neighborhoods were often dirty and built with shoddy construction and muddy roads at this time. Congested. Yeah, and this new housing, by contrast, would be built of brick and have paved streets. Mm-hmm. But, Patrick, like everything in history, when you dig down a little bit, there was an ulterior motive. Pullman thought that by making his employees happy, they would not be swayed by unions, which Pullman hated. Mm. And, of course, George Pullman, a man with a large ego, what does he name the town? He could have named it something else, right? He could have called it Lincoln, but no, he, he named it Pullman. Well, and as I recall... The other complaint against Pullman about this planned community was that he owned everything and he didn't sell any of these homes. He just simply rented them. And he also owned all the grocery stores. So the workers would come in and get paid a wage, but then almost all end up going back into George Pullman's pocket. That's right. It was a company town. So by 1881, Pullman town was finished and his employees were moving in. So, Patrick, I think we should probably state where the neighborhood of Pullman was and still is. It starts at 103rd Street south to 115th Street. And, of course, naturally, a railroad line borders it to the west, the Illinois Central, shooting on an angle to the southwest, and Lake Calumet is to the east. So capitalists like Pullman were obsessed with unions, perhaps because of the 1877 railroad strike, where railroad workers went on strike nationwide This particular strike was quite violent. So Pullman Town was a lovely-looking place, but the employees were not necessarily happy about it. As you mentioned, George Pullman would not let the workers own their own homes. You paid rent to Pullman. Also, as you mentioned, you bought your groceries and other items at Pullman-owned stores. And like condo boards today, Patrick, there were rules that Pullman expected his workers to comply with. And if you didn't, you could be evicted. An observer, Richard Eli, who came to Pullman, wrote that the Pullman Company control of the workers meant that, quote, every man, woman, and child is completely at its mercy. I guess I was also imagining that would be kind of in the middle of nowhere. So whatever is brought in to Pullman Town, it's not like you could just go to the next neighborhood over and go to the grocery store. You are totally beholden to the town that's built there by Pullman. Right. You couldn't go in your time machine and go to the Walmart, which is in Pullman today. (laughs) You just had to tough it out. That's right. Time machines are expensive, and you can afford that on those wages. If you can build a time machine, you probably don't need to work at Pullman. Eli also stressed that this was un-American, as freedom was being denied to the residents. And it wasn't just in housing that the workmen had no rights. It was also the factories. A foreman had absolute control, and a person could be hired or fired at their whim. And of course, there were no unions. If someone talked of unionizing, they were immediately fired. And so any talk of unions was done in secret. At this time, most unions were what is called craft unions. For example, a carpenter would be a member of one trade, although there were umbrella unions that covered a variety of professions, like the Knights of Labor, which we've talked about in the past. Well, or the Cooper's Union, right, for barrel making that they'd have their own guild and association. Right. And as you remember, Patrick, the driving idea of the Knights of Labor was the fight for an eight-hour day. In fact, Pullman's workers joined in that famous walkout on May 1st, 1886 that we talked about on our Haymarket podcast. So when we talk about the year 1893 in Chicago, of course, we focus on the Columbian Exposition. And many of the visitors to the fair did take side trips to Pullman to marvel at this utopian factory town. 
1893 was also a year of great economic downturn and the eve of a depression that affected everyone, including the Pullman Company, as orders for rail cars dried up, workers were let go or had their pay cut. For example, George Pullman laid off 1,500 employees during this time, and of the remaining ones, 3,100 had their pay cut, first by 25%, then by 50%. And Pullman also didn't adjust the rents as they remained the same. Well, you can imagine the fervor and anger that would rise up for this very rich man who's just putting a squeeze to these day-to-day workers. And by the way, Patrick, his management team continued to get paid their usual salaries. Right. So now you're looking at real inequity in this Gilded Age. The year 1893 was also when the American Railway Union, the ARU, was formed in Chicago. And Eugene Debs, a fireman by trade, meaning working on the railroad, was elected its president. In April 1894, this new union was tested as it took on the Great Northern Railway. And after 18 days, the railroad agreed to their terms. Well, word got out how successful the ARU was. And in May 1894, a third of the Pullman workers joined this new union. They met with George Pullman himself on May 7, 1894, and complained about the pay cuts as well as the rents in Pullman. Pullman basically said if they didn't like it, they could move out of the Pullman housing. And of course, it didn't stop there. Three days later, Pullman fired three of those workers who had met with him. This led to a major strike at the Pullman factory as several thousand workers walked off the line. It was reported that George Pullman was surprised by the strike. He was forced to shut the factory down. And the strike continued. The Chicago Civic Federation tried to intervene, including Jane Addams, Patrick, of Hull House fame, who suggested arbitration. What do you think George Pullman said to Jane Addams? Oh, I'm I'm sure he just (laughs) thought she was just uppity and getting in his business. I think we have a transcript from that meeting. Uh, Let me see. It says, no, George Pullman rejected the idea. (laughs) Nuts. Yeah, right. Nuts. (laughs) Meanwhile, a group called the General Managers Association, or the GME, backed Pullman. This group represented the many railroads throughout the nation. So that June, the ARU, that new workers' union, Men in Chicago. Now they had 150,000 members. Some of the members actually joined with the Pullman strikers by refusing to load or service Pullman cars. So on June 26, the ARU called for a national railroad strike. Two days later, 100,000 railroad workers were on strike. The Chicago Tribune announced the situation with the headline that read, Not a Wheel Turns in the West. Wow. And we should note for the listeners, too, that this is at a time when the primary way for anything to move around the country was by rail. There was no interstate express or highway system, and so the railroad was the main way to get anywhere or to transport any kind of goods. So they really had a stranglehold on transportation. So meanwhile, in retaliation to that strike, the GMA began hiring scab workers. And in another tactic, they began to attach Pullman cars to trains that usually didn't carry them, like freight trains, for example. So in retaliation, those in sympathy with the Pullman strikers began forcing these various trains off the rails to the point where Illinois Governor Altgelt, same guy as the pardon, Patrick, he had to intervene with troops. So needless to say, this disruption of the rails did not go unnoticed by Washington, D.C., President Grover Cleveland was concerned about the U.S. mail shipments being disrupted. His attorney, Richard Ornay, who was sympathetic with management, 
wrote that, quote, whatever was done should be done at Chicago. If smashed there, it would collapse everywhere else, unquote. So Orney told President Cleveland to ask the courts for an injunction against Eugene Debs and his union against boycotting trains, specifically those carrying the mail. So on July 2nd, 1894, an injunction was issued, and by July 4th, there were 2,000 federal troops arriving in Chicago. Patrick, this is probably a good place to talk about the power of injunctions. Now, you and I had the advantage of talking to an attorney about injunctions when we interviewed Tom Gagan of the firm Dupre, Schwartz, and Gagan. We're on the same wavelength, Chris. I was just thinking about that interview as you mentioned that. Right, because remember, we talked to Tom about Pullman, actually, when we sat down with them, as well as what a powerful tool an injunction is regarding strikes. Right. Having a labor lawyer explain the injunction was fantastic news to me and good background for this history. Oh, absolutely. And speaking of background, you'll notice there's a bit of background noise in this recording that we did from Tom Gagan's downtown offices. So let's go to that interview. Would you say that George Pullman was creating a utopia when he built his village or whatever you well, call it? Well, it's a utopia and a dystopia. Dystopia. <laughs> This obviously was a, a place... He was into surveillance capitalism before that term was coined. That's, that's what Pullman is about, surveillance capitalism. Elaborate on that. Well, I mean, he watched everybody. That's why there was a company town and there were foremen at the corners. You bought everything from the store and he had records on you and this and that and the other thing. It was the ultimate. People think that that's new. Nothing tops what Pullman did. But he didn't have the digital apparatus that we have. Every time I go to Walgreens, they ask me for my phone number. They know the toothpaste I buy and whatever else. I mean, I give it to them. I guess shame on me. Yeah, well, I mean, you could say that we're moving in this country towards a virtual Pullman. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. When the Pullman town was built, this was very nice. The housing stock was nice. You had the Florence Hotel. The factories were close by, obviously. So on paper, it seemed like a good idea. And then... George Pullman cut the pay. This was in 1894, which led to a massive strike. The next thing was injunctions from the federal court, omnibus injunctions, and it was to enforce the injunctions that the U.S. Army came in. And so the and injunction was to force the workers back to the manufacturing well, line? Sure, it goes line. back to the early 19th century. You know, I mean, there are always injunctions and different things. And, you know, it was a violation of the antitrust laws for workers to associate with each other. I mean, just stuff that you find bizarre now. The state laws that tried to help working people were struck down by the courts. So Robert Todd Lincoln was the counsel for the Pullman Company. I was at his mansion in Manchester, Vermont, called Hill Dean, and I was taking a tour. The tour guide was like, and Robert Todd Lincoln was the counsel for the Pullman Palace Car Company. And then later, when George Pullman died, he became the president. And everyone was very impressed, you know, all the tourists. And then I raised my hand and I said, <laughs> yeah, so uh, 
Wasn't it true that Robert Todd Lincoln was probably in the room when they decided to cut the pay of the workers? And there was a, just a stone silence. And they were like, um, <clears throat> moving on to the parlor. So facts can be inconvenient here. Eugene Debs and his union was part of the Pullman strike. I think it spread to 23 states, 250,000 strikers. That wasn't the first railroad strike in the country by any means. One in 1877 was at least as volatile. They had the U.S. Army here in Chicago, and I think about 30 people got killed and 200 wounded. Debs had been in strikes before Pullman. The railroad unions were like the Teamsters in the 50s. I mean, they just controlled everything. You could shut down the country. They were so powerful. We practice under the Railway Labor Act a lot. There's a Railway Labor Act that was passed prior to the NLRB passed in the 20s, and the War Labor Board, back in World War I, it was set up really for the railroads. The railroad determined what labor policy there was. That was the heart of the American labor movement. So going back to this injunction, the injunction was the tool of capital. Sure. Today and then. Yes. Is it an effective tool? It's very effective. And it's why the teacher strike only went on for a couple of days. It's why the CTA employees never strike. It's all illegal. And most strikes in the private sector, about 98% of the time in the private sector, it's illegal to strike. Because when a collective bargaining agreement is in effect, it's illegal to strike and get an injunction. In the old days, people used to strike during the collective bargaining agreements. How many listeners know the name of the union side labor lawyer who became president of the United States? Abraham Lincoln. Nope. He was a railroad attorney. This man who became president defended strikers. William Howard Taft? Oh, no. <laughs> He's a Republican, you're right. Even close. Your Honor, I withdraw that comment. It's William McKinley. Okay. He defended the Knights of Labor. That were started in Chicago, I believe, in the stockyards. Yeah, but he defended them in Ohio in a strike action, and I think maybe more than once. This anti-labor feeling in the country? The legal structure, the courts were anti-labor. I know that's why Fort Sheridan was built on the North Shore, because after Haymarket, the people of Lake Forest and whatnot were really freaked out. Oh, well, the Gilded Age, high inequality, and there was a lot of bashing of labor. In the Jacksonian era, not so much. Mm. Right. Even though there were unions that were prosecuted then, it was all at the state or local level, it wasn't. If you were capital, you had a room full of lawyers with an injunction at the ready? They controlled the courts, yes. And then what was the typical consequence? Did they start to throw people into jail? Bankrupt the union so that it didn't have any assets. Felix Frankfurter and Nathaniel Green wrote this book, The Labor Injunction, an indictment of the use of the courts to stop people from organizing. So the first law, first real effective labor law that was passed was the Norris LaGuardia Act. And what is the Norris LaGuardia Act? It's nothing but removing the jurisdiction of the federal courts to issue injunctions. So from 32 onward, it was far more important than the Wagner Act allowing organizing because you could run wild in the streets. Mm. And after the Depression and the discrediting of the business class, you had a lot of state governors in the big Midwestern states that just wouldn't send in the militias. So the federal government wasn't doing it, and the states wouldn't do it. Remember, Altgeld didn't send in the troops. That's right. The federal government did. So it was like a tag team. One or other would do it. But in the 30s, the federal government couldn't do it from about 30 to 32. And then I presume FDR didn't want to do it, but couldn't do it anyways. That was a major, major, major reform. And employers couldn't do it. Ironically, you mentioned Governor Altgeld. 
he was sort of in the epicenter of labor strife. He was governor during the Pullman strike. And I believe if you stand at George Pullman's grave in the cemetery there, you can see the pillar of Governor Altgeld. So that was Tom Gagan of the law firm Dupre, Schwartz and Gagan, who not only is an attorney, but also a great author of books and articles about politics, labor, and other interesting topics. And we thank Tom for taking the time to speak with us. So when we left off, federal troops had occupied Chicago, setting up their tents on the 4th of July, 1894. Governor Altgeld was not thrilled to have 2,000 federal troops in Chicago, as the usual protocol is a governor has to put in a formal request to Washington, and then the troops are sent. In fact, Altgeld wrote Cleveland asking that those federal troops be removed as there were no trains running because there were not enough workers to operate them, not because there was any violence or anything. But Cleveland doubled down, sending more soldiers, Patrick. If anything, the presence of these troops provoked violence. Mobs began attacking the trains. Rail cars were burned, and people were shot and killed by security forces. With 250,000 railroad workers on strike, the violence spread to several states, including California, Utah, and Oklahoma. A few weeks after the soldiers entered Chicago, it looked like the strike would fail. George Pullman still refused to negotiate. Meanwhile, like Tom Gagan said, the injunction was a powerful weapon. The president of the ARU, Eugene Debs, and several members of the union's leadership were arrested for ignoring that July 2nd injunction. In fact, Debs would be sent to prison for six months. By July 18th, a sign was displayed at Pullman saying that they would soon be open again for business, and over the next few weeks, strikers began to trickle back to Pullman. By September of 1894, the strike had failed. It seemed that the country had been traumatized by the strike, so much so that President Cleveland formed a commission to analyze the root causes of it and how an event like this could be avoided in the future. This was the same commission, Patrick, that Kim's great-grandfather, John Fitzpatrick, testified before. One of the lessons learned from the commission was that capital and labor needed to work together through arbitration to avoid such a strike in the future. By 1898, a federal law was passed that made it illegal for management to prevent workers from joining a union. This is something we have in common, besides riding the 49B bus. My grandmother's maiden name is Kiernan. There was a report on the Chicago strike of June, July, 1894 by the United States Strike Commission appointed by the president, Grover Cleveland. And John E. Fitzpatrick testified before the committee. And you gave me a copy of the testimony. And guess who's questioning him? Commissioner Kiernan. No. There we go. Another connection. Oh, my God. That's right. So the commissioner says, state your name, age, residence, and occupation. And the answer is, my name is Johnny Fitzpatrick. He says, I'm 43 years of age, reside at 5822 Drexel Avenue, Chicago. Now, Patrick, that was, I guess, before they put in the north, south, east, and west designations. Yeah. They also renumbered and renamed some of the streets, too, at a certain point. So he said, I'm in charge of the first division. I did not take charge of that division until the morning of the 6th of July. I was sent out there by the general superintendent of police. It contains the Rock Island, Lakeshore, and Michigan Southern Grand Trunk, Eastern Illinois, Wabash, Western Indiana, Northern Pacific, and the Santa Fe. As an aside, these are amazing trains that he's talking about. So back to the testimony. 
They all run through this district. And the commissioner says there was no car burning at all? Answer, there was one car set on fire on Sunday morning. Commissioner, were there any charges made that strikers were interfering with new men? Were you called upon to protect new men against assaults of that character? Answer, there was one man assaulted in Brighton Park proper. That was in a park, not on the railroads, and we arrested the two principals in that case. Is there anything further that you can state in reference to difficulties attending the strike? Answer, no, not anything that I know of. It's interesting because it doesn't sound like there's a lot going on there, but when you read the book by Chief O'Neill, there's a lot about your great-grandfather. He was hit with a stone guarding the trains. He literally rode on the trains. He was sitting up with the engineer driving the train, and they were just getting attacked in and out of the stockyards, Patrick. Wow. I can only imagine. Fitzpatrick got around. He certainly <laughs> did. Well, think of it this way. May 1st, 1893, he's leading the president, Grover Cleveland, to the World's Fair. And then in the summer of 1894, he is battling protesters and President Cleveland sends in the federal troops. And then he winds up being interviewed as part of President Cleveland's official board. So quite a year from 1893 to 1894. So, Kim, this brings us to our next point, H.H. Holmes. Oh, my favorite part. So why don't you tell us about Detective Fitzpatrick and the World's Fair? Of course, I'm going to mention this again. When I did the ancestry and the searching through newspapers, newspapers came up regarding H.H. Holmes. And I'm like, no way, this has got to be some other person. You know, there's plenty of Fitzpatrick out there. And then I came up on these articles, Detective Norton and Fitzpatrick, from July of 1895, from the Chicago Tribune, of course. Some of these headlines include, Holmes may be tried for the murder of Minnie Williams, Holmes's wife, or new clue is found. On and on and on. I connected the dots from, like we said earlier, how he got to Englewood detail and Holmes's castle was in Englewood. So I thought to myself, holy cow, this is my great-grandfather. So he ended up searching through Holmes's castle. From what I read, you're being modest. He was the first police officer in the castle. He was the first police officer ever in, and he discovered a garment buried in the basement, a bloody garment. Yes, yes. That was the New York Times article published July 24th, 1895. 18 inches between the uneven surface forming the floor to the basement of the Holmes building in Englewood was discovered last evening of the blood-stained undergarments, supposed to have belonged to Minnie Williams before her it was dug up by Detectives Norton and Fitzpatrick a few minutes after the regular force of workmen employed in excavating had abandoned their task for the day. It was taken to Inspector Fitzpatrick, who made a careful examination and expressed the opinion that the stains upon the garment were made by blood. He was for sure that was blood without a doubt. And then he also ended up talking to Holmes's wife. That was Chicago Tribune, July 27, 1895. Inspector Fitzpatrick said last night, Mrs. Holmes declined to talk about her husband's case. Also, there was a 
flu found the next day, just before Inspector Fitzpatrick went home for the night, the heavy satchel turned over to the inspector. All these articles showed how much he really was involved. It's so exciting. Well, I found an article that you turned me on to. This is from the Chicago Tribune, Sunday, July 28th, 1895. The headline says, Last Edition, Castle is a Tomb, Four Skeletons Taken from Holmes's Charnel House, Murders Made Plain. And in it, it says, The man who produced this startling evidence was closeted with the inspector and detectives Norton and Fitzpatrick from 6 till 9 o'clock last night. The inspector declined to make the name known at present for the reason that it would handicap his further investigations. In describing the remains to Fitzpatrick, he said, quote, The body looked like that of a jackrabbit, which had been skinned by splitting the skin down the face and rolling it back off the entire body. The flesh had been taken off with it, unquote. This is the skeleton now in the possession of the inspector, that would be Inspector Fitzpatrick, who believes it to be all that is left of Mrs. Julia Connor. Yes, like I said, it's unbelievable how much he was in this. It still shocks me to this day. One other thing I want to mention that Chris probably remembers is I actually decided to meet up with Adam Seltzer. He wrote H.H. Holmes. True History of the White City Devil. He actually has a couple of accounts with John Fitzpatrick's name in it. And it's pretty awesome. He does the White City tour. I kind of did that with him. And he was happy that I was able to join him. I told him I was a descendant of John Fitzpatrick. Which you are. It wasn't a false claim. Yes, I know, I know. (laughs) But... It was really awesome. You know, he's in these books and he's in these articles. And it's not just one topic. There's Holmes, Pullman Strike, Haymarket, the fair. The Jonestown Flood connection, too. Jonestown Flood. It's incredible. So what is the rest of your family kind of made of this? I assume you've kind of shared it with them. They're... (sighs) It's hard (laughs) to say. I have a very small, small family. To my dad, he felt really proud that I was able to find out all this information. I'm extremely proud and happy to find out all this information. And now that I can pass it on to other family members. Oh, yeah. And Kim, they got to learn about this. I know. And then you got to ask them to look. Look in the scrapbooks. Look in the basement, the attic. Because you never know what you're going to find. Yeah. I'm going to try it again. Let me just read this. This is from an article. Inspector Fitzpatrick said, quote, I'm a policeman first and last and will do duty in any capacity. If I am told to carry a club and travel a beat, I'll do that. We are here to obey orders. That is so inspirational to me to hear him say that. He worked hard. Right. He made the best of it. Right. And by obeying orders, he landed in some of the greatest cases in the history of the United States, the H.H. Holmes case. So he did his duty and he was rewarded by karma, good karma. Well, I wish that he kept a diary because can you imagine how rich that would have been? Yeah. He was busy working. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel that you're part of the flow of Chicago history through your ancestor? Absolutely. 
you know, if I mention the Chicago police or something, some people might say, oh, do you have any family members in the police? And I'll say, heck yeah, I do. Every time I hear the World's Fair, I get excited knowing how much I know about it. My ancestor was part of it. If I hear Holmes, I get super excited knowing that my ancestor lived through it. And it's exciting for us to experience history through your family member because we kind of take a broad view of it. But when you get down to the individual, it's exciting to learn more history that way. And this has been exciting for us. I'm very happy to do this with you. I'm happy to say that I'm part of Chicago's history and I get to share this. Going through all this again gets me excited. Have that family connection to all these different points in history. Yeah. All through one guy. One bit of the puzzle. And it's it's a big, big expansion of it. That's an excellent way of putting it, Kim. And we're very happy that you're sharing this with us because we're going to share it with others. So more people are going to know about Johnny Fitzpatrick. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you also proved, Kim, that you don't have to be a historian to work on history. Anybody with an interest, and you're very tenacious, and you've done excellent history. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Well, we enjoyed having you. It was a good conversation. Interesting. We would like to thank Kim Fitzpatrick for talking to us about her great-great-grandfather, John Fitzpatrick. Listening to these stories really makes the events that he experienced come to life. This has been fascinating. I mean, this is a slice of Chicago. In today's age, it's hard to even imagine this freewheeling, bombastic city that it was. Oh, totally. And Patrick, I thought a good way to conclude today's episode would be to talk about another great-grandfather. So Ronald Reagan's great-grandfather was Michael Reagan, and he emigrated from Ballyporeen County Tipperary. And Michael Reagan left for America in 1857, and we know how that story turned out. In Ronald Reagan's ancestral home of Ballyporeen, in honor of the president, a resident named his pub the Ronald Reagan Pub. When hearing about it, President Reagan was pleased, saying, JFK got an airport named for him, and LBJ got a space center, but I got a pub. (laughs) He was delighted. And if you think about it, to someone who is Irish, it's a great honor. And so in Chicago, we have Chief O'Neill's at 3471 North Elston. Right, a callback from the beginning of our talk and, and absolutely a great place to go for a, a good Guinness. Oh, absolutely. And I was there recently for their famous Lenten fish fry. And around the bar, they have mementos of Francis O'Neill's life, including a police uniform from the period. And my favorite part of the bar would be the fireplace, where they have a painting of your man himself, Chief O'Neill, over the mantel. And by the way, one of the cocktails they serve there is called Far From Home, a tune, in fact, collected by Francis O'Neill. Tis a fine drink, Patrick. On my recent visit, I had one. Well, maybe two. But you know, there should be a pub named for John Fitzpatrick. Of course, it would be called Fitzpatrick's, and inside would be artifacts from Chicago history, like the Haymarkets and the Columbian Exposition and the Pullman Strike and even the H.H. Holmes case. What a wonderful place to meet and talk history. I, for one, I would raise a glass and toast the memory of John Fitzpatrick for a life well-lived and for staying at his post and doing his duty. Thank you for listening. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. 
And special thanks to Jill Hoggenson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.